The Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 57 through 79. The birth of John the Baptist. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, when they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God, and fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show us the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness, before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness, and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What do our lives exalt and magnify is the first thing that we asked on Advent week one. Advent week two, we asked the question, over what do we rejoice? Um, what is it that causes rejoicing in us? And, and is there any confidence in our rejoicing? Because Mary's confidence was so great. This last week, we asked the question, what did God do? What did he actually do in the sending of Jesus to the Jews? What was his goal? And we saw that his goal in sending Jesus to the Jews was to give the right for his people to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness. And today, as we approach Sunday, or excuse me, Wednesday, when we celebrate Christmas, children, we're celebrating Christmas in just a few days. And if you think you're as excited as the kids in my house, you better think twice. The question that I have for you is this. What is driving Christmas? What drives God's actions at Christmas? And this is the theme. The conviction that the driving force of God's actions is his tender mercy will enable our full investment. The conviction of the driving force of God's actions and specifically as we look at these actions around the birth of Jesus, is his tender mercy. And as we're convicted of that, we will be enabled to fully invest. Mary talks twice about the mercy of God. In one of those places, she says that God's mercy is towards all who fear him. When the people saw that Elizabeth was with child, even though she was past the age of childbearing, they regarded Elizabeth and they saw that God had shown great mercy toward her. 
Zechariah proclaimed that in the birth of his son and then in the sending of Jesus, that God's promised mercy was made known. And I want you to see that it's because of God's tender mercy that he sent John. That's what we're going to look at in verses 76 and 77. It's because of God's tender mercy that he sent Jesus, 78 and 79. And it's because of God's tender mercy that God sends you and me. That we are part of this. That we are fully vested. Our looking back to Christmas, the Advent, that which we call the coming, our looking back at Christmas and our looking forward to Christ's second return. I want you to know in this Advent, it's the opposite of nostalgia. And maybe in your pessimism, and I told you already that I'm the Grinch of my family, in, in the pessimism that each of us bring to Christmas, maybe we think, man, is this just nostalgic? Is this just what we do because it's what the church does? And we look back to a time that we lie to ourselves and it was better and brighter and, and fairer then. And I want you to know that this is the opposite of nostalgia. I've been listening to Dolly Parton's America. I don't know if you followed Chad Abumrad who does um, Radio Lab, but he has another podcast that he has titled Dolly Parton's America, and it's phenomenal. You've got to go listen to it. And I, I know that one of the reasons I like it is because I'm from the hills of Tennessee, as she is. Um, but I think it will resonate with all of us. And they talked about nostalgia this week. This word that means in its, in its, in its original forming the pain of remembering home, nostalgia. When it was first used, it was actually used as a medical term for those who were at war and who were unable to fight because their hearts hurt so much for what they longed for, what they remembered, what they wanted. And Jad Abumrad suggests that one of the reasons that Dolly Parton is so important to us and, and transcends in many ways so many different subcultures is because she puts forward that memory of home, of a past time, a simpler time. But I want you to know what's interesting is nostalgia faces backwards. And that's not at all what we're doing when we celebrate Advent. Rather, Advent results in the conviction that the driving force of God's action is his tender mercy, which enables all of us to fully invest in it. And the first thing that I want you to see of three is because of God's tender mercy, he sent John. So look at the passage with me. The page is, is 856, I believe, in those blue pew Bibles, 856. And I want you to read verses 76 with me. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. Zechariah is transitioning. Remember that John has just been born eight days prior. He's taken John to the temple for him to be circumcised. He was named there, and they determined that his name was John, according to what the angel told Elizabeth and Zechariah and told Zechariah to name his son. And he did. He named him John. The angel told Zechariah, and this is just a couple of verses earlier, you can look back in the same chapter, that this son would be the prophet to the Most High and would go and prepare his way. 
And so here in 76, Zechariah turns his attention toward this child, his child, John the Baptist as an infant. Don't, don't let this picture of Carter before us disappear from you. Take hold of what's been given to us today. And he turns and he looks at his son and he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Now, if you've read the chapter, this first chapter of Luke, you would know that that is in contrast to what he told Mary that her son would be called. Not the prophet of the Most High, but the son of the Most High is what he told Mary. But here we see Zechariah clinging to the promises of God that he at first doubted and, and was mute for the entirety of Elizabeth's pregnancy. But upon his proclamation of faithful naming of his son John, his voice was opened and he said, you will be the prophet of the Most High. And then in verse 76, we understand what he has come to do. It says, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Now again, Zechariah is an Old Testament priest. He's a priest that serves in the temple. He's a priest that's educated. He knows God's word. And when he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he proclaims that you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, Zechariah is thinking about the prophecies that have gone before. Malachi 3.1 says this, the, the very last prophecies, the, the latest prophecies in the Old Testament before, before God was silent for hundreds of years said this, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And you begin to go, what has Zechariah been thinking about as he's silent? Well, Luke goes on to write in just a couple of chapters in Luke chapter 3 that, that, that John the Baptist has come and he's proclaiming baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And then he says, just as it is written, and then he quotes Isaiah 40, a voice in the wilderness that cries, prepare the way of the Lord. This call that John the Baptist is called to prepare the way of the Lord. Now what's interesting here is that the more you study preparing the way of the Lord and the more you delve into it, it is preparing the road in which a royal dignitary would enter into his new kingdom. And it's preparing that way. In Isaiah 40, you read that every hill will be made low and every valley be lifted up and that the way would be without obstacle, right? And thus, John the Baptist proclaims a baptism for repentance, right? A turning from everything else that we look for life from so that we would turn to God and say, our life is to be found in you and you only. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. A turning away, a removing of obstacle, and a waiting, a readiness. A waiting for the kingdom to come. To live in such a way. Because Jesus received the baptism of John the Baptist, right? And you go, well, that doesn't make sense. He, he wasn't sinful. Jesus received the baptism of John the Baptist that he would proclaim, I too am oriented toward the ways of God's kingdom coming in completeness. And so John was to prepare the way through the proclamation of this baptism. 
We're told in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, that John the Baptist isn't the light. But he was to bear witness to the light. John the Baptist says later on, listen, the one who follows me, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John comes to call to repentance and to return. But John does not give the power to return. In John's ministry, sin is highlighted. But the reality that everyone would have felt is that we need to be delivered. We need it. Because of God's tender mercy, he sent John. But I also want you to see that because of God's tender mercy, he sent Jesus. Look at verses 78 and 79. Oh man, I, forgot. I skipped this, verse 77. Let me, let me give it to you real quick. To give the knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of sins. When, when John came and he proclaimed that Jesus was to follow, he was giving the knowledge of God's salvation in the forgiveness of sins to God's people, right? He was saying, look, God is coming to deliver you and it's going to be the forgiveness of your sins and it's for you, his people. But because of God's tender mercy, he didn't just send John to prepare the way, but he also sent Jesus, verses 78 and 79. This is what it says. Because of the tender mercy of our God, which looks backward to what he's just said about who John was and why he sent John, and it also looks forward, whereby it says the sunshine shall visit us from on high. Those of you who were here last week, remember that this idea of God visiting his people is the idea of coming to redeem them, to set them free, right? whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Verse 78, because of God's tender mercy, he sent Jesus. And you go, Bradley, where do you, where do you see that? And remember, John the Baptist is an Old Testament priest. And he sees it when he says, because of the tender mercy of our God, the mercy that emanates from his inner being, as it were, whereby the sunrise from on high, is what it says, shall visit us. This sunrise from on high is an idiom. It, it, it is a group of words that means something else that can't be deduced from their own meanings. The sunrise from on high. We have these things. Don't beat around the bush, right? It's an idiom that we say. Don't beat around the bush. And what we know is, come on, out with it already. Don't beat around the bush. My favorite one as a southerner is that dog will hunt. I went to somebody's house last night. They gave me ribs. I ate them and I said, that dog will hunt. And if anybody tried to determine what that meant, you'd be like, I can't believe you just called that guy's food dog food or something. What does it mean? It simply means it's fantastic. It will work. It's so good. And you see, that's what these words mean. The sunrise from on high. Because literally, it means that which rises up but is from above. It would represent the sun or the east, maybe a star in its rising. 
In the Greek Old Testament, it referenced the branch that would sprout up from the root of Jesse, that which would come up instantly. You see it, right? The branch. And it began from Jeremiah through Zechariah to represent the Messiah. That one from the Davidic line who would come and be a king. And that idiom that Zechariah says, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the Messiah shall visit us, the one from on high is what he gives. And there are two reasons to give light. And there you understand why the writers chose this idea of sunshine to represent that word, the sunshine from on high. Because the first thing that the Messiah does is to give light, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And to understand where he's coming from, we actually get to revisit what Luke used in the Advent lesson. This passage out of Isaiah, where in Isaiah 8, he talks about the importance and the impact of sin on God's people. That because they had turned away from God, they had extinguished the light among them and they lived in darkness and that darkness in that gloom of anguish, as it says in Isaiah 8, 22, was all around them. And then in Isaiah 9, 2, it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Isaiah also says in chapter 59 that the cry for justice was all around them, but there was no justice, and they groped like blind people looking for hope. And you see, when the Messiah would rise upon them, it was to give light. And if you know the Bible, and even if you don't, but you remember something about the Bible, you remember that in Genesis 1-1, the very first thing that God said is, let there be light. And here in this creative force of the light dawning on his people, the Messiah comes to those who are seated in darkness and who live underneath the shadow of death. Jesus has come to bring hope, to bring light, to illuminate our lives. But not just that, but also to guide our feet in the path of peace, it says. To guide our feet in the ways of peace. Notice that Zechariah uses that possessive pronoun that includes himself, our feet. We need to be guided, that we would be guided in the way of peace. And to repeat what Luke read, verse 6 of Isaiah 9 simply says, For to us a child is born. To us his son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And I'm not going to sing it like Luke did. Prince of Peace, right? And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. That the Messiah has come to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet in the way of peace. Jesus, 
who would later on proclaim, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I'm the way to the Father. But understand, no one goes to the Father except through me. Because of God's tender mercy, he sent Jesus. And finally, because of God's tender mercy, he sends us. What's such a big deal that the driving force of God's actions that we have read through Mary's song and through Zechariah's prophecy is his tender mercy? What's such a big deal about that? Because it's God's tender mercy with which he works in us and sends us. Jesus will say at the end of the Gospel of Luke in chapter 24 that the Christ came and would suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed to all the nations. And Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, you're my witnesses. You're my witnesses to all that has happened because I have come. I began to stop and think about the songs that we sing and that we'll sing on, Wednesday, on Tuesday night. The first one that we'll sing is Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silent. And that song simply reads like this. Let all mortal flesh keep silent and in fear and trembling stand. Ponder nothing earthly minded. For with blessing in his hand, Christ our God to earth descended. Our full homage to demand. Take just a minute and ponder the reality that the God of the universe came in the form of a human baby. Christ our God to earth descended and demands our full homage. You see, Jesus' deliverance was definitely spiritual. He proclaimed through John the repentance of forgiveness of sins, right? It is definitely spiritual. But this Jesus is also the king of the universe. And he demands our full homage, our full worship all of our lives. What is the force behind his coming? What is the reality that will break your heart and mine? It's when we realize that God did this because of his tender mercy for us. I don't know if you read the New York Times, but Nicholas Kristof is one of the op-ed writers in it. And for the last four or five years, he's been going to Christian leaders around the country and interviewing them around Christmas time. And this year, he went to Philip Yancey. Uh, Philip Yancey wrote a lot of really good books. You ought to look him up. You, 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 would, you would benefit a lot from reading what he has to say. But Nicholas Kristof asked this question, isn't it possible to just simply admire Jesus and his message in the Sermon on the Mount without buying into all the miracles, the greatest of which in his mind is the resurrection, right? Why can't we buy into Jesus' message of love 
while dropping all the miraculous stuff, he asks Philip Yancey. And that's a question that we need to ponder today. Can we just allow Jesus to be spiritual and, and, and accept the love without accepting his kingship? But you see, he is the Messiah, the one promised from the line of David. He is the one who is seated right now at the right hand of the Father. He is our King who died for us. And if we dismiss his divinity, then his sacrifice for our sins means nothing. But because he is both God and man, his death delivers us spiritually and into a kingdom. You see, this will save you from looking to other forms of protectionism as a Christian. But it will also give you hope to go home, to wherever that home is, to the relationships that you're going into, where you expect them to be one way. And you're already tired because you're thinking nothing's going to change. But to believe that God's actions are motivated by his tender mercy means that we go into life, we look forward believing that he's at work. That it's not just status quo from here on out, but it's God's kingdom advancing. So that the apostle Paul can say, I appeal to you by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices. And in closing, the last song that I thought of is the song that we'll close with on, Wednesday, on Tuesday night, Joy to the World. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. The conviction that the driving force of God's actions is his tender mercy will enable you and me, to fully invest in his kingdom, Christ's kingdom. Let's pray.